How many of you ate like crazy for Thanksgiving? You don't have to admit it, but if you want to, go ahead. I, I did. Uh, the problem with me, we were up in a cabin, and so you stick 14 people in a cabin. It gets crazy. Then you invite a couple other people over, and then you, you're waiting for the turkey to get cooked and, and, and the other things to get ready. And we were waiting for a while, and I was getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And next thing I know, food's ready. And I'm like, okay, we're praying. And it's attack. I mean, I couldn't control myself. Anybody else get like that? You wait long enough, you're just like, ah. <laughs> and then you have the psychological obligation to try everything so you don't insult anybody else who brought food. Anybody have that problem? I'm a people pleaser. That happens to me. So the, uh, talked about that last week. The reality though is that crazy, so I'm just like stuffed. You're sitting there afterwards. You're like, why did I do that to myself again? Every year you tell yourself you're not going to, or you make excuses why you're going to. But the reality is I'm sitting there just full and we were hanging out, playing games and stuff. Next thing I know, it's like, you know, four hours later, and I'm like, really? I'm hungry. Anybody else like sit back and realize that? You're like, whoa, that's, that's ridiculous. I just pigged out four hours ago and I'm already hungry again. Or even worse is the case that the next morning, you know, you just ate thousands of calories. You could survive like, you know, an apocalypse kind of a situation. And now you're waking up the next morning. You're like, oh, I really need something to eat. It's ridiculous. But that's the nature of hunger. Hunger and thirst don't stop. You could drink as much, you know, I don't know what you drink, your cider as possible or, or water as possible, and you're just going to get thirsty again. You're going to find yourself right back where you started going, I need water, I need something to drink, I need something to eat. And thirst and hunger is an interesting reality. It occurs in all kinds of areas. It does not simply just occur in food, but it also can occur in the soul. It can occur in a desire. In fact, human beings seem to, to have this innately within us. This reality that somewhere out there is something that could satisfy our soul, our longings, our wants, our desires. Something about our life seems missing and hollow. And when we step out to have more, to have it fill us up, it's like we filled up a funnel. It's like we've, we've got hungry again. Maybe you're searching for meaning or maybe you're young enough that you're running around and you're thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, Greg, because life's pretty awesome. I'm pretty satisfied. It's pretty cool. And, and yet, you know, in the, I remember the 90s and 2000s, it was the X games and everything. Like everybody was into the adrenaline junkie games. You know, throw yourself off of something, attached to something else, and you'll be fine. Whether it's a parachute or a rubber band or whatever, people were going for any kind of thrill they could possibly gain. You guys remember that? Seems to have gone away. A lot of people nowadays opt for traveling the world and, and different lines for food or cronuts or you name it kind of thing. Or seeking out some kind of new experience, some kind of new adventure. Other people, instead of are still tried and true. They're going for pleasure, entertainment. They're going to see the movies. They're watching Netflix at home. They're spending their time with that ever book or whatever entertainment thing. Some of us are still finding ourselves still stuck with addictions and, and drugs and things because somewhere back there, we longed for something. Somewhere back there, this met a need in us and it grabbed us suddenly. But the problem is just like Thanksgiving dinner, it goes away in time. Just like the funnel that gets filled, eventually it drains out. And you need that new fix. You got to have that new adventure. You got to make that new corporate ladder. You got to move that, move over and make that next dollar. You got to take down that next business deal. You've got to stand up and maybe it's got to have another kid or you name it. We find ourselves in the midst of a desire to fill the void again. As if it's infinite. As if it never goes away. 
and it won't. Strangely, I think that desire has been created, unfortunately, by, by something that's broken in the reality of life. And it's really felt when you've gone and you've strived long enough that suddenly, whether it's in a religious desire or something else, that you found it's wanting. Some of you are, are at the beginning and maybe you've found a religious expression and, and you're, you're thinking Christianity is it. If I walk in these ways and I read my Bible this many times and I do this stuff, then man, I'm going to have this, this peace, this, this success at finding something. Or maybe, maybe it's in Islam. A lot of people are running to that right now. A lot of people have ran to new age. There's been a lot of different things people have ran to to fill these voids. Some of you have ran to all these other things I've talked about and you've woken up and you're anxious. How are you going to make that next deal? What if my kids don't turn out the way I want them to be? What if, what if, what if, what if, and this, and this, and I got to do this, and I got to do that. You make lists, very long lists, and you check them off, and you do them every day. And if you don't hit all your on your list, it's just going to pile onto the next day. And now you got more on a new list. And some of you are thinking about, and then oh, what about all those other problems? I don't have enough money in the bank because it may fall apart. Or you turn around, and now you're sitting there, anxiety. Some of you are finding yourself depressed. You haven't hit what you wanted. You haven't made the success that you were hoping to be. You're not partner. You're not this. You're not that. You, you went to college and you thought this is the dream. And, and it's not there. And depression's setting in. And life is closing down. That's just the void. It's just the hunger. And that kind of stuff sits inside of us. And it, and it just flows out of us. And the, and the ancient world wasn't un, didn't miss this. They knew these things. They grasped these ideas. In fact, it's interesting that the book of Isaiah in chapter 55, uh, this prophet who is speaking to the people of Israel stands up and God speaks through him and says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I don't know how you buy stuff without money, but that's the point. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Your labor for that which does not satisfy. Doesn't it sound like us? Once the hit is over, once the, once the, the high is gone, once the party's done, the same old dissatisfaction over in time begins to set in. Why are we spending all of our time, all of our efforts, all of our lives seeking something to satisfy and we only wake up the next morning hungry and thirsty again? When are we going to find that thing that truly, absolutely satisfies? And he says, listen diligently to me, carefully. And eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And he basically says, I'll, I'll love you like I love the one who is after my heart. I will make this relationship with you. And, and what's in this suddenly is an Isaiah, is an, a longing Israel has had, a longing of thirst, a longing for seeking. They would see it come out in idols and all these other things, suddenly coalesced. And God says, you guys are looking for all these things in all these places. No, I care about you. Come to me. And I will satisfy your thirst. But this word thirst is older than this. It goes back further in Israel's thinking. In fact, I want you to imagine that you're standing out in the middle of a dusty location. Dirt all over the ground. It's been just kind of sandy and 
The plants are really kind of dying, if there's any plants at all. It's scrub brush and difficult terrain. No, I'm not describing the 15 freeway. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the wilderness out in Israel. And the Egyptians, they had just left Egypt. They had been wandering in this wilderness, traveling together, tasting the dust in their mouth, feeling the heat of the sun, realizing the temperature and the degrees. And they stand there before this giant mountain of Sinai. And they've been led to this place to worship God. And God's presence has shown up. All these things have happened. And now they turn around and they go, Moses, we're dying of thirst out here, man. We're thirsty. Can't get, what will you bring us out here to die without water? What are you doing? And God goes, Okay, hold on, Moses. I will, behold, tell them this. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Anybody find that weird? Here they are out in the middle of nowhere. And they're saying, we're thirsty. We need water. And God assesses it as, is the Lord among us or not? This doesn't seem to follow. It seems like they were saying whether God was going to provide for them or not. Not whether he was among them or not. Not whether he was with them or not. And yet even still, it doesn't say that Moses was told, go up to the rock, strike it, and water will come out. No, it says, I will go before you. There on the rock at Horeb. I will stand there. In essence, the the Hebrews would understand that the water that came out came from the Lord. It was his provision for them that he was present there to bring about water for their thirst. Now, this begins to attach something in the mind of the Israelites. What begins to occur is that God's presence and thirst seem to go hand in hand. They seem to connect. In fact, it begins to show up all over the place as Isaiah 55 said, come and come to me and I will, you'll thirst. I'll give you water to drink. But then it shows up in the Psalms. In fact, the Psalms routinely talk about thirsting for God and longing for God and desiring. And it was this picture of something greater, something satisfying. And Psalm 63, one through five says, oh God, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Stop right there. Notice what he says. I long for you, God. I thirst for you. So I go to the what? The sanctuary. To see your glory and your power. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Here I am thirsty and longing and hungry. And where do I find satisfaction? I find it in God's presence at the temple. Now the reason I'm walking you through this is it's very important to note this out because all of this ties together in these threads, this thirst and this longing and being at the temple and being in the presence of God showed up and suddenly culminated in a conversation amongst a group of people who had just been exiled, the Israelites. They were coming back to their hometown of Jerusalem. 
And this man, Nehemiah, comes marching into town and he's like, why is the wall not built? God sent me here to build it. And they build this wall up. And once the wall is built and all this drama has occurred and they've survived, they gather together and this little old scribe comes out named Ezra. I always imagine him like this guy always holding a ruler because he was just so like, no, we're listening to this. And so opens up the book, starts reading the law and the people listen. They start weeping because they realize they haven't followed God's law. The rain comes and all this stuff. It's the rainy season. And so there's all this provision happening. They're at the water gate, not Nixon water gate, at the water gate at the, at the temple. And they're hearing this law proclaimed. And all the elders gather together and go, what did we do? What did we do? We haven't been following the law. And they said, well, at this time of year, there's a celebration that goes on. Oh, really? It's called the Festival of Booths. Last week we mentioned this. Jesus had gone up to the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths. It was one of the three times Israelites were called to come to the temple and be in the presence of the Lord as a whole community. And so this was like the Christmas festival. It's like the big one. Everybody loved going up to the temple for this one. It was the festive, fun one. There was tons of food and everybody was enjoying it. You got to hang out in tents and lean-tos and makeshift buildings. It was just a big celebration of the wandering in the desert. And part of this culminated in a picture of God's providing the water and, and answering thirst. And, and people of Nehemiah's time came up with this image that I'm going to share with you. All the leadership, the Jewish leadership, there were these scribes and these priests. They were out and they would gather this large golden chalice. And then in a solemn assembly, they would march themselves all the way to a pool in the south of Jerusalem called the Pool of Siloam. And there they would dump this thing in that pool, pull up this water, and holding this chalice, the high priest would march with all the priests behind him, and the people lining the streets excited to watch this very pageant of water. And they would take that water all the way to the very altar of God in the temple, in the temple, and they would sit there and they would take first the drink offering of the wine and they pour it on the base of the altar. And while they're coming in, people would start singing and celebrating. The choir would explode in some of the psalms called the Hallel. And so they're singing out this praise be to God, praise be to the Lord, blessed be his name. And the songs would be echoing in the chambers of the rooms. Men would be surrounded and they would have these shake sticks that would rattle and they'd all start going. And so this whole cacophony of sound is growing as they carry this chalice and they pour it into these silver bowls. Then they take the silver bowls and first comes the wine and then they pour out on the base of the altar all the water they had just collected. And suddenly the entire place would explode with praise be to the Lord and his provision. Because it was a picture of God's provision of the rain. His provision of all that was necessary for them to have food. And the promise of a coming day in which he would pour out his very presence, his spirit, upon Israel. It was a picture of their thirst being quenched. And suddenly all of this pattern tree and all this explosion would occur. And in the lull of this amazing moment, in roughly 33 AD, one voice suddenly shouted out something. We're going to look at that. So grab your Bible and open to John 7. John 7, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 25. We're not going to go um, in order here, but I want you to focus in on verse 37, 38, and 39 for what we're looking at. If you need a Bible, they're under the seats. Go ahead and grab one. 
You can find it on page 893 in those Bibles. But suddenly, in the lull of, some, of when, however it happened, you suddenly hear Jesus' voice shout out, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day when this and a light festival would go on, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. <clears throat> this is audacious. All this pageantry that's gone on for hundreds of years, and the midst just after that bowl is poured out, I imagine this lull, a singing, all this stuff, suddenly Jesus goes, Hey, anybody thirsty? I got, I got it. Come to me, I'll give you what you need. If you're thirsty, I've got water. And this water, if you'll trust me, if you'll believe in me, if you'll understand that I'm the one who gives this, I will pour out upon you my spirit. Is this idea. And so Jesus suddenly says, this imagery you just watched, we just celebrated and it culminates in me. That's radical. I mean, what Jesus is saying is only he can satisfy our ultimate thirst in life. Only he is the one that comes to that ultimate thirst because the bottom line is every other thing can fill the funnel up, but it's going to drain out. But with, the, with God, he is so infinite, he comes in and he satisfies fully and completely. And he does so by his spirit. And so Jesus says, look, I'm the one who's going to be there. I'm the one who's going to satisfy. You say, how in the world does he do that? Well, first of all, we got to understand where does this thirst come from? The thirst comes from the fact that we were made in the image of God. You and I were made to be linked with God. We were to get our value from God, our purpose from God, our desires and our love from God. You and I are made to link, in a sense, with knowing, when we know God to come to life. But what happens is, in our rebellion against God, and our sin, we actually broke the relationship with God. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm here. I'm going to reseal that relationship. I'm going to bear on myself the sin and the punishment that should come because you've torn that relationship with God apart. I want to heal it. And when he does so, he brings about a unity with God. And the, the soul's longing is suddenly satisfied. We find who we, what, who we are, what we're made for, how we're to live, all in a relationship with God. And that's what Jesus is getting to here. He's saying, look, come to me, believe in me. Believe does, and notice Jesus standing here, he's the one saying this. You know, when I say, do you believe in Jesus? Uh, today, we can almost say like, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I thought he, I think he lived. I, I think he existed. Now, Jesus is standing there and he's not saying, you know, believe in me. Believe I exist. It's like, duh, you exist. You're saying the words. Jesus is there saying, no, trust in me. Put your dependence upon me. Follow me. Not just simply have mental assent. Yeah, Jesus is cool and he died for my sins. Yay. No, lean on him. Put your weight on him. Throw your life on him. That's what the word believe would have meant. And when we do that, he satisfies. In fact, what's interesting is that these people had come to where? Where did they come for this satisfaction when they were thirsty? What was it called? It was called the, the temple. Just say the temple. Okay, so do we come to temples today to worship? So yeah, this is a temple. No, this is not a temple. This is an auditorium. 
We had a, an illusionist up here a few nights ago. Uh, you wouldn't do that in a temple. It's not a temple. Christians don't build temples. Because something happened to the temple. The day in which Jesus died on the cross, when he was hanging there, and as he gave his last breath, a great earthquake occurred. And in the temple, there was this large curtain that cut you off from the, the sanctuary, the inner holy place of God's presence. And that big curtain suddenly tore and fell. And some people say, yeah, it opened the way to God so we could all come to him. No, no, no. It means God left. He wasn't going to stay there anymore. He went out of the Holy of Holies. Well, where'd he go? Well, obviously he's everywhere. He didn't go somewhere. But the point is that he's, he, he ceased to reside in his presence there. Instead, he chose to do what he promised to pour out the spirit, the presence of God on his people who believe in Jesus. Christians, if you're a Christian in this room today, the, you don't go to a temple. You are one. 2 Corinthians 6.16 states, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In every other religion, you must go to God. In every other religion, you must go to the mosque. You must go to the temple. You must go to the place to make sacrifice. You must go and do these things. You got to get to God. It is Christianity alone that says God came to you. God loved you that he came and he cleaned the mess up by bearing it on himself to come to you, to give you his presence. You don't work to get God. God did the work and came to you. No more sacrifices. Jesus sacrificed the sacrifice. He gave his life. No more going to temples and making temples and doing rites. No, he dwells in you. You, as a Christian, are his temple. As you walk about in this world, you are carrying the presence of God, in a sense. God's presence dwells with you. To empower you to ministry, to empower you to these places. See, a few we, weeks after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he told his disciples, look guys, don't, don't go out there yet. Wait and hang on because I am going to send the promised spirit upon you. And he had to go in order to bring it. And so he does this and the church alights with power and it becomes powerful for preaching the gospel, for standing against sin and evil. And suddenly you and I are filled with the very presence and power of God. So now, yeah, go out there and have a cause, but do it knowing that it doesn't satisfy. You've been satisfied. Yes, go out there and make that deal. Have that vocation. Make big changes in the world of finance, knowing that it doesn't matter what happens to your life. It's satisfied. Yes, have another child and raise them well. Educate those kids. Get out there and do something meaningful with your life because you're already satisfied. The hunt is over. But there are plenty of people who would struggle to receive that, to take that in, to, to want, because it's a radical assumption. People wrestle with Jesus all the time. And again, I want to go back and reference some of these. That it's our assumptions that can keep us from getting the satisfaction that Jesus is offering. You may be here today and you're still wrestling with Jesus. You're still wondering about Jesus. You're not sure about Jesus. Last week we talked about how Jesus has all these assumptions put on him. And he doesn't fit any of those boundaries. In fact, he says you need to judge him by right, by, by, not by appearances, but by right judgment. 
In fact, as he goes on, verse 25, some of the crowd starts getting confused. They stand up and they can't figure Jesus out. And so they're going to miss out on this opportunity when it comes. Some of them in Jerusalem therefore said, verse 25, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Aren't they trying to arrest him and have him killed? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? This this, this has got to be him. They're not arresting him. They haven't taken him away. This is the guy. But wait a minute, somebody said. We we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, nobody's going to know where he comes from. And Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. And I love this line. You know me? You know where I come from? It's a question mark there. I get to say it that way. What? You, You think you know me? You think you got me all figured out? I don't think so. And, and this is what he says. But I have come not of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And to him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. You see, the, he's, he's getting into this big weird conversation with these people. When, when you meet somebody, what is typically the first question you will ask somebody after you've asked them their name? Hi, I'm Greg. What's your name? Oh, next question in America is, what do you do for a living? On average. So where where do you live? What do you do for a living? What we mean is, where are you coming from? Because I want to know. But what do you do? And that's how we kind of figure out where people are. If you live in in, in the middle of Corona, in the center of Corona, in the circle, that has a whole other connotation than if you live in the retreat. Doesn't it? We think a whole different set of thoughts because of where we live. Same thing happens here. They're like, well, where are you coming from, Jesus? Because they cared about two things. Who's your daddy and what town are you from? That's it. If I knew who your daddy is and I know what town you come from, I know what you're going to be like because I can sum you up. And so they get into this conversation with Jesus. They're like, wait a minute. But we're not going to know where you come from. Jesus says, you don't know where I come from. My origin is my father. I come from the father. I come from God. And you don't even know God. So yes, I'm mysterious to you. You don't know who I am. And the people go like, whoa. They're seeking to arrest him. This guy, this must be the guy. But verse 30, it says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Note that. Mark that. Underline it. Whatever you want to do in your Bible. Yet many of the people believed him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? But don't think they've got it figured out. In fact, jump down. Verse 40. These people are still confused. When they had heard these words, some of the people said, is this, this is really the prophet. So they heard Jesus now proclaim, he is the water, come to him. And they go, this guy's the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has the scriptures not said that Christ comes from the offspring of David? Notice something. On one hand, they're like, we don't know where the Christ is going to come from. On the other hand, they're saying, he's got to come from, not from Galilee. He's got to come from, from where David came from, from Bethlehem. Pick one, please. Which is it? Is he, do we know where he comes from or we don't know where he comes from? And the point is, these people didn't know their, the truth for themselves. They were dependent on part, whatever was being told to them. Which is again an indication why you can't just trust in what I'm preaching or in your Bible study from your rear radio, you need to be a student of the Word of God. You need to be somebody who's in the Word. You need to, be, you know, you need to engage with Jesus with who He is. If you're just trying to figure out Jesus and you haven't become a Christian yet, you don't just go off and trust every website that you're going to read. Wrestle with Jesus. Wrestle with His words, with who He says He is. Engage with Him. 
Ask the questions. Don't, don't not ask the questions. Engage the questions. There are answers to them. That's why we always encourage you here at Olive Branch, ask your questions. Don't be afraid to engage in thoughtful, intelligent questions. There are thoughtful and intelligent answers. And so these people are there. They're engaging with Jesus. They're getting interesting answers. On the other hand, there are plenty of people out there that don't want Jesus to succeed. They want to they stop him. And so suddenly their response is different. They want to arrest him. The Pharisees heard the crowd, verse 32, muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said, then said, hey, I'm going to be with you guys a little longer than I'm going to him who's, who sent me. You'll seek me and you'll not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus referencing his ascension here. And he's saying, I'm going to one day be in a place you can't get to me. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man think he intends to go? We can't find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the, G- the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Well, what does he mean by saying, you seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. You th- he, thinks he, he, he really thinks we, he can stop us? Yeah, you're going to get somewhere where we can't find you? Yeah, right. This is the arrogance these guys are having at this point. But here's the thing. It goes on. Jump down to verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? So they show up without Jesus. And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this guy did. The Pharisees answered them, have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That's a great way to win friends and influence people right there. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's just trying to hold them to their own standards. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Are you a podunk carpenter man up from Nowheresville? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. These guys had judged Jesus for not being um, of the right pedigree, not having the right intelligence, not coming from the right town. They had they looked at Jesus and said, you know what? You're on the wrong time. I, I think we, we got to be careful because we can do the very same things. You may be examining Jesus and coming with your chronological snobbery, which is a very dangerous thing. What's chronological snobbery? It's the assumption that we're smarter and better today than they were back then. Now, granted, we have amazing technology today. And granted, we have amazing abilities to get all over the earth and some pretty cool things. We know a lot more about global environments and stuff. But I don't know if we could say we're as wise as they were. I don't know if we could say we're as in touch with the soul and the earth as they were. Or God. And I think we need to step back sometimes and realize that maybe our culture doesn't get it all right. And maybe the things that Jesus says should be examined a little bit more carefully to challenge us before we judge him. These guys judged him before they even had a chance to hear him out. And so this is one of the ways that we can avoid realizing that Jesus is true in his offer. That he can and indeed satisfy the thirsts that we have. That it's not found in all these other things of life. Because they will let you down. And even when you reach that pinnacle, if you disagree with me, and strive to be the top of that financial game, the top of that fame game, the top of those things, I guarantee you, you will look back at this day and you'll say he's right because I'm not satisfied. Many who have made it to that top have said those very words. I'm not satisfied. I want more. And so we need to stop and realize, Christians, we don't need to strive anymore. Do we even realize what we have? 
Do you realize that you have the presence of God, the Spirit Himself dwelling with you? You are His temple. You don't have to go off and do these religious rites and all these religious things. No, He dwells with you right now. His presence is here. You don't have to be at church to experience the presence of God. You can be alone in your closet in prayer, alone on your bed, in, in the car, at work. He is with you. God is not far off and distant from your problem. He's right there alongside of you. You're his temple. And we experienced that just a little bit while we took a silent time with the Lord in communion. And the reality is that God is never far. He is always there. And some of us go, well, where is he? I don't feel him. I mean, I remember what it felt like when I first became a Christian. Anybody remember that feeling? Some of you guys are there right now. You're just young Christians. You're like, I'm on fire. This is awesome. The word of God's like, you pick this thing up and you're just like, it says that, really? And you feel convicted and you're like, you're like turning the page like, I can't believe this. Before it was the driest, dustiest book in the world, wasn't it? And you picked it up and you're just like, what? I am horrible. You just, it just keeps tearing you up. I read James the first. That was a dangerous book to read the first time, but it tore me up and it was like fire. And man, everywhere you went, God was with you. And you were like meeting people and you're telling them about Jesus. And they're like, I need to hear them. They're crying. You're like, you're crying. They're crying. These miracles are happening. You're like, this is incredible. And one day you kind of wake up months later and you're like, this is great. I love Jesus. This is awesome. A year later, you're like, I remember when it was great and I love Jesus. You know, it just kind of starts drifting. Ten years later, you're like, oh yeah, I know people like that. And maybe you've said these words, it'll go away. I hope not. I hope it's matured and not gone away. See, but I don't feel like God's presence is there. You know what? I understand. I'm an introvert. Some people are like, really? Yes, I am an introvert. I get my energy when I'm alone. If you've met me outside, I'm like, hi. You know, you know I'm an introvert. Okay, so I get it. It's the eyebrows. No, the, the point is simply this. When I got married, it was hard to recharge. Any introverts agree with me? You're, you're married and your wife's there with you or your husband's there with you and you're like, I'm never alone. <laughs> this person's always here. And you're like, you're trying to get rest and you're like, okay, uh, you're in the room. I can't rest. You know, it's just, it took us like weeks to figure out how to sleep in the same bed. We're just like, you're here. I can't sleep. And it was just this reality that as an introvert, you charge when you're alone. And if, you mar- if you're an introvert married to an extrovert, I'm sorry. But the reality is that you, you have that time. Then one day you woke up and you're like, Oh, I, I'm like alone. I feel like I can recharge because you're part of my life. You're part of me being, you're here and it doesn't interrupt my introversion. I don't notice that you're in the room. Now that sounds horrible. <laughs> but the reality is, what I'm saying is she's an introvert too, is that we both came to realize we could be in the room together and it wasn't interrupting our ability to recharge. Now, what's funny is that it only takes about a minute until she's like, hey, Greg, I got something. I'm like, oh, you are here. You know, it's kind of this sudden conversation picks up. Or I go, hey, and she's like, oh, you are here. And we have this conversation. Now, we can go all over the place. We can be in the same house. And then we had kids that changed everything. But the reality was that we're in the same house and we could live with each other and we could get energy and, and be satisfied. But it wasn't like they weren't there. It's not like I walked in the room and didn't know she was there. It's just I'm used to her being there. The same thing's true with the Spirit. First, he's in your life. And you're just like, what are you doing? You poke this and poke that and this is wrong. And you're like, I know. <laughs> and then as time goes on, God's still there. But it changes. 
You're used to his presence. And sometimes he goes, hey. And you go, what? And he shows you something in the word and you're like, whoa, you're still there. Do you know when he shows up the most? Is when you turn to him and say, hey. And you go to him in prayer. And suddenly he's right there. In the word and he's right there. And he's convicting you and he's changing you and he's comforting you and he's loving on you in the midst of your turmoil and you bawl and you cry or you feel strength and you stand because the presence of God is with you. Second Peter puts it this way. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't need anything else. You're satisfied. You can now engage the world because you have the presence of God. The question is, do you know what you have? Have you given up on that time with the Lord? It's somewhere way back there when you were young, you were passionate about being in the Bible and praying to God. And now somewhere along the line, you've wound up and and you've gotten too busy. You got to get up early to beat the crowd because of the traffic. Are you blaming the 15 for the lack of quiet times? Too many kids. You, you got to get that exercise in because it's really, really important. Oh, sports games. Is there something stealing the most valuable thing because now you start running after other things? That's called spiritual adultery. You're seeking other things to satisfy you when you've had what satisfies you all along with you everywhere you go. Are you stopping long enough to have that conversation? To spend that time in the word? I like to put it this way. If you treated your, your closest relationship physically on this earth and the way that you treat your relationship with God, how would it be going? You see, sometimes we want to run after all these other things. But the answer is that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if we put Jesus first and he says, I'll satisfy you, everything else gets added. Those causes will be found. That purpose will be known. That value will be discovered as you come to the one who satisfies with his presence. We don't have to run to temples. You but need to simply pray and be in his word. And he's right there with you. This week, this is your challenge. If somewhere back there you dropped your quiet time or you dropped that time with the Lord, pick it up. If you're still going in it, go strong. Keep going. If you've never tried it, try it. Begin. For the presence of God is here with us that he may be known. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we uh, thank you that you've given us so much and we ask that you would enable us to be in your presence, to know you greatly and to be satisfied. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.